there's one vital thing that the world's most confident and most wholehearted men do that many others don't, possibly not even you. In fact, doing this one thing can help boost your self-esteem and allows you to connect with God more intimately. What is that thing? That's what you'll find out in today's episode with author and former professional football player, Jay Barnett. This is the Becoming Men Podcast. Gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Becoming Men Podcast brought to you by TheBecomingMen.com. I am your host, Ray De La Nuez, and this is the podcast for men on their masculine journey. Today, we're going to be discussing some of the real issues in a young man's heart, because let's face it, our fathers weren't perfect. And whether they tried their hardest or they didn't even try at all, a great deal of men today are silently suffering from father wounds. Worst of all, these father wounds tend to affect the most important relationships in our lives. Here in a little, you're going to hear my conversation with Jay Barnett, and we're going to be talking about the importance of dealing with the neglect, the absence, the abuse, the withholding of love and affection from our fathers so that you can own your healing and thrive in the relationships that matter most. Jay, welcome to the show, my friend. You know, again, thank you for, for having me on, brother. Um, I'm, you know, humbled to, you know, be on various platforms, you know, kind of sharing my story, sharing my walk, and then also just sharing um, my perspective as I've grown um, as a, you know, uh, a man. Um, I grew up a PK. My father's been pastoring 30 years now, uh, Baptist pastor. I grew up in Mississippi. So I grew up around um, a lot of traditional church. Uh, and uh, my mother was Pentecostal, so very interesting household, having a father who was a Baptist pastor and a mom who was radical, right, speaking in tongue, laying on her hands and, and things of that nature. And it, it was a very unique dynamic because on one end, my father was very rigid and my mom was very radical. And so trying to see the both of them kind of walk together uh, was uh, it was it was something that we, we we would still like to see today, even though they're they're divorced and they're friends now. But when we were kids, uh, you know, there was a lot of different dynamics going on in my household that I didn't understand. Uh, there was a lot of things that I saw in church behind the scenes that I knew at an early age that had nothing to do with God, obviously. But in that uh, process, you know, I was a very precocious kid. I was very smart very intelligent. Uh, my parents knew that I, I was very spiritually gifted. You know, I was seeing visions and I was, you know, I was speaking, preaching as a, as a nine and 10 year old and laying hands on people, you know, in church. Uh, yeah. So I was this kid preacher when I was young, like nine, and 10 years old, this phenom uh, kid that was traveling all over Mississippi preaching. And so oh, wow. I've been, yeah, I've been trying to get some tape. My father has tape of it. And so, uh, Hopefully within the next month, once we gather it, you know, I'll release it on. Yeah, that'd media. be awesome to see, man. <laughs> yeah, so, so, uh, but when my parents divorced, man, and just kind of, you know, brushing through, my parents had issues, man, you know, as far as I can always think back in that marriage. And I think what was happening was that my father had challenges that he had not resolved and my mom as well. And so when they the when they divorced, that really kind of took me by surprise. But it also sort of shook me because now I, I knew that I didn't have a model before me. 
And I know you and I were discussing just about the fatherlessness that's across the country and how so many issues are derived from that. I yeah. lost identity the day my parents divorced, man. I, I remember it just like it was yesterday. And my dad. What do you mean by that? But uh, my dad and mom bringing us all together and says, hey, man, your mom's getting a divorce. My sister had a panic attack uh, at the time. Like it, it was crazy. But at that time, when I say I lost my identity, I didn't know who I was going to, you know, look up to because I looked up to my father. You know, my father yeah. was everything that I wanted to be at that time. He was a great singer. Um, he recorded a gospel album. He was a, a heck of an athlete. You know, everybody still talked about him at school, you know, how good of he's an athlete he was. And and um, he just has this had this charisma that that drew people. So when he divorced my mom, it was as, as he divorced us as well. Mm. And so my mom moved us from Mississippi to Texas. And, you know, when I think back on it is the kid who got in a U-Haul truck leaving Mississippi was not the same kid who got out of the truck when I entered into Texas because I felt like at that time I had to adapt a maladapted persona where I now had to become the man of the house and that's when all of my issues started because I wasn't ready for a role that was placed on me because of what it took place with my parents. And how old were you when, when that happened? I was, I was 13. So you're, yeah, a yeah, 13 so, year old, yeah, 13 year old young years, man. man. Yeah. Yeah. Pivotal, pivotal years for any young man. Uh, because, you know, in the black community and black culture, we don't have what the Jewish community have, right? We don't have a bar mitzvah uh, for there to be a right of passage for young men on how they identify manhood. You know, what do we model ourselves after? Many times our rights of passage is experiencing sex, you know, at a early age, you know, how many girls phone numbers can you get? You know, how many uh, things can you you do? Uh, can you take without getting caught? You know, somebody said, oh, he stole this. How many people can you beat up? You know, we have all these different uh, very dysfunctional is what I call them uh, uh, standards for rights of passage when it comes to young black men. So I had seven uncles and not one of them took me by the hand and said, hey, nephew, I got wow. you. Wow. And that 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 right there was very painful to me. Even to this day, that still bothers me. You know, uh, if I can be transparent, absolutely. But it's um, it still bothers me because there's no way that I'm going to watch a young man go through something that's life changing that alter his perspective, not just on life but himself. Yeah. Because when boys experience loss at an early age. Uh, whether it's divorce or a boy experienced disappointment from a father, he experienced abandonment, rejection. This sets the course on where he's going to look for validation. Yeah. Where did you start looking? Because validation is necessary. I started looking at looking for validation on the football field. Mm. And that's what became, you know, my, my safe haven for me is that, because I had so much anger toward my father. I, so, I was so bitter and, and so mad at him. And I would put a helmet on, you know, in the ninth grade and would go out and punish kids because it was my way of getting back at my father. It was my way of letting out my aggression. Because yeah. there, there's no one to talk to us about anger. So yeah. people are always says, oh, he's so angry. He's so, she's so angry. But no one really helped us to foster in 
the healthy spaces that anger can really be channeled in. Yeah. Because anger is not all bad once you learn how to channel it in the right place. And football gave me this sense of structure, the sense of identity. And then the coaches became a father figure. So they provided that validation when I mm-hmm. scored a touchdown, when I made a big play. Hey, great job. Because I remember in seventh and eighth grade playing junior high football and my father's never making any of my games. Yeah. I remember him coming to one game and and I remember him, you know, just kind of uh, very vaguely uh, just kind of, you know, he made mention of something, but it wasn't like he took me home and started working with me on the things that I were not good at. Yeah. Because when you look at a father, right, you, you even when you go back to the scriptures and you look at Abraham and you look at Isaac and you look at Jacob and you, you look at these different characters in the Bible and you look at the sonship and the mentorship mm-hmm. and the guidance that we all need. Right. I think was it Esau who tricked his brother right into the uh, that's right the blessing and I mean and that just shows you how important a father's blessing was in biblical times absolutely and so here I was not understanding why I wanted my father's attention and love and affection but I knew that it was important for me to become a young man not knowing that it would be also this journey that I would take that will cause me great pain because, because I didn't have an outlet, I began, uh, you know, cutting on myself. So I was a cutter when I was 13. So I did a lot of self-harm when I was a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, physical self-harm in in that form, it's more common than anybody would ever like to uh, like to admit, man, it it happens so often. And then there's the, there's the spiritual psychological self-harm that happens too. Uh, underneath that could be just as dangerous and just as harmful. Yeah. Right. So how do you feel like you going from that young boy that was able to go out through throughout Mississippi preaching to now this 13 year old, uh, you know, feeling like you're a fatherless boy. Did you feel like, uh, you know, you, you kind of started walking away from the faith. What was that like? Oh yeah. 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 I, um, I can remember the day that I talked to God and told him I was done with this God stuff. <laughs> you, you resigned. Know, I, yeah. I resigned. <laughs> You know, I was just like, man, how, how how can you do this to my family? How can you bring on this um, this this burden that I'm now carrying as a 13 year old boy because I'm a surrogate father to my sisters mm. and I'm a standing husband, a stand in husband to my mother. Wow! And I am trying to work through this and process that God, how could you allowed this to happen. I remember my grandmother, we would, we would spend the evenings with her when we got out of school and she would watch soap operas. And I remember watching one where these kids were fighting the, uh, who they were going to go stay with. And they was talking about divorce and the parents. It was the first time I ever heard of divorce as a kid. And because you, you don't think about your parents separating when you're a kid, you know, you that's what you come to know. This is mom. This is dad. And I remember telling my sister, oh, that'll never happen to us. You know, we have such a great wow. family. And <laughs> until one day, you know, it knocked on our door. And I don't think any of us was ready because we loved our father uh, in spite of all of the chaos and all of the drama that was going on between him and my mother. And 
yeah. and between the churches and all those different types of things, man. But we, we love them for who they were, but not knowing that the pain that we would experience when they divorce, because the divorce impacted each of us differently, because we all had a different relationship with our father. Yeah. I think that's something that parents don't take into consideration. Um, if you have, you know, one, of, especially if you have two or more kids and they each have a different relationship with their mother and father in therapy, we call this subsystems. And so in a subsystem, mm. there's a system work inside of a system, meaning yeah. that you have the family system and then you have the system between a mom and daughter, mom or dad and son. And then you have systems that either works between the siblings as well. So each system is different. And yeah. so in that regard, we, we didn't understand what was happening because like I said, you know, when he divorced her, it was like he divorced us. Mm. So here we, we were all lost. And all I kept hearing, man, was Jay, you got to be strong. You got to be there for your mom. You got to be there for your dad. And I'm like, well, who's there for me? Wow. Who, who did you hear that from? Oh, I heard that from tons of family members, man. Yeah. Aunts, yeah. Uncles, you know, you know, you the man of the house now. You got to take care of things. Like, what? Gosh, <laughs> that is a, those words are a knife, a very sharp man. knife, double-edged <laughs> sword being stabbed repeatedly into the heart of a young boy. And yeah. I think, I think, you know, I'm honest about the Spanish community. We, we're notorious for this as well. And, and then the black yeah. community too. You know, we, yeah. we think that as the, the young men, you know, when the father's not in the home, we're supposed to take that on. And I've heard, yeah. you know, in my, in my culture, you know, then the, the brother becomes this disciplinarian, right? Yeah. And then there's, like you said before, you, the stand-in husband and the surrogate father. I had to have a conversation with my sister when I'm, you know, 20 some years old, I'm married. I have my own children. And she's telling me, you just weren't there for me as a dad figure. I'm like, I was never supposed to be your dad figure. You know what I'm exactly. saying? Like we, exactly. we needed to unpack that. Uh, but there was that expectation. And that yeah. right there, man, is it? Yes, bro. <laughs> That, that, that expectation, man, is so dangerous. And for me, it really caused me to really become suicidal. Uh, my mm -hmm. mother remarried when we, uh, when we moved to Texas Okay. and, and go figure married another preacher at that. <laughs> so how long after, and, um, this is probably like maybe, a, uh, maybe about, I would say about six, eight months after. Okay. Um, it was a very quick thing that happened. And of course, you know, having conversations today, my mother said her decision um, to get married again because she didn't want to do this by herself. She didn't want to raise us by herself. Yeah. So, and I talked about this in my book, Hello King. Um, the guy was very physically abusive toward me. Um, he was a, a, a manipulator. I mean, he was almost, man, it, it was almost, man, like he ran a cult in our house. Wow. And he, he turned everyone against me and had them thinking that I was, you know, full of demons. And, you know, they were trying to pray demons out of me because, you know, I was so angry and I can feel that this guy was not good for my mother. So you take being a standing husband, a surrogate father, I have my own issues and pain that I'm dealing with from the divorce. Now you add this fool, idiot, yeah. but mass yeah. manipulator on top of it, who's physically abusing me. Dude, my first suicide attempt when I was like 14. Like, I mean, wow. I was trying to jump out of a window because I was just trying to end all of this crap. I'm like, dude, I don't want to be here for that. Yeah. And and the expectations that I still want you to be a good kid in the midst of all this pain. How? How is this possible? And this yeah. is why I think it's so important that parents, 
when making life changes that also cause changes to happen within a child's life, you have to have some conversation and somebody to mediate. Yeah. Because kids don't understand divorce beyond the surface. They know that mommy and dad is not together. They probably going to have two homes. You know, kids are looking at the superficial. Oh, I got two Christmases, you know, things like that. But they're not thinking from the scope of psychologically what this is going to do to you as a human being. Because when the household is divided, now your perspective become divided. Now you have a a, a one-sided perspective because if mom is speaking ill about dad or dad is speaking ill about mom, or let's say they're not speaking, let's just say they're not even communicating on the welfare of the child. So you now feel stuck in between grown people having to choose. Yeah. But guess what? I still want you to go to school and perform. How? Let me ask you this real quick, Jay. When you were 14 years old, you're playing football. How big were you? How tall were you? What was your weight like? Man, I was probably like, you know, five, nine, um, maybe 205. Okay. Big muscular I mean, kid. Yeah. Bigger, bigger kid. Here's, here's why I bring that up. I think that this is uh, an important uh, little side note. I think a lot of people uh, tend to look at young boys that look older. Yep. And almost take away that, I, that, I uh, see where you going? You get what I'm saying? Like, it, it's yeah. like we think that they're older because they look older. So we yes. don't give them that same amount of yes. love and respect. No. And, you know, what and do you think? This, and, and there's this ex- expectation to perform based on your look and yeah. presentation. Yeah. Cause it's you're like, crying. You're 14. It's like, get, grow the hell up, man. You know, exactly. And, exactly. Bro. And so it's like, it's like even when I see kids who are like six, three already. They're like 15 and people are expecting them like you six, three, you need to be dunking on people. You need to be running <laughs> people over. It's like, listen, man, his <laughs> brain has not caught up to his height. His yeah. brain has not matured <laughs> to his size. Yeah. There still must develop it. And I think as a society, man, that's a great point that you bring up because it becomes so unhealthy on the boy that the boy now feels pressure to carry the family on his back. Mm-hmm. And when he feels that he's not carrying the family on his back, he has to hear from mom who now has made him a son's been, a son who just happened to be a husband in her eyes. This is why you see so many of these black athletes, man, that are pressured to perform. They're pressured. Yeah. I got to do this for mama. I got to get mama a house. I got it. I got to come through everybody. I want to put the hood on my back. We have to stop this Mm. because what we're doing is we're not allowing these young boys to develop and you're pushing them into manhood before their time. And they don't have the mindset on what it takes and what is the functionality of a man, not a male of a man. It's more than just paying a bill. Mm. It's more than just being able to have sex and use what's between your legs. Being a man comes in who are you? How do you show up? How do you believe? How do you stand? What's guiding you? What's leading you? Who are you following? And those things. And so I think, man, it, it's such an atrocity that we're seeing, especially in the black and brown community, that these pressure, and by the time that these boys grow up 
and get in their own family, they're mentally exhausted already. Mm -hmm. Because some of them have been husbands since they were 13, 14, <laughs> like I was. <laughs> Paying bills in college, right. on scholarships, sending money home. Man, yeah. I remember the day, bro, I re I never forget it, bro. I remember the day I got my little refund check from school. <laughs> bro, I remember the day. I'm talking about King. I'm talking about I can see it right now, bro. I remember the day, man, of handing my mom $800 cash for her. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you felt what? And it's, and, and it's, it's, it's also a bit disturbing because you have the sense of pride. Mm-hmm. That's right. Sense of pride. Your chest right. poking out. Yeah, I took care of that for mom. I did that. Yeah, I did yeah. that. And I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> You, you, 18, 19, well, 18, because I was, I was in the dorm, 18 years old, yeah. giving $800 for your mom's rent. Yeah. And guess what, King? That pressure caused me to even choose women that needed me, mm. not women that I can actually grow with. Wow. And I even talked about this on um, other podcasts about how it affects you dating, how it affects you masculine, how it affects and impacts your masculinity because you now feel that I'm only as manly as much as I can do. And if I can't do anything, am I really a man? Mm -hmm. That was internalized somewhere in there. Internalized. And wow. that's why, man, this, this cycle and this model is so dangerous because you know, I'm at 39 now, you know, being at this place of healing, peace, um, yeah. you know, just, you know, all of these different levels of, of growth that I've made. It took 10 years, bro, to get here and to see all of that I had endured had impacted the man that I was trying to become. Yeah. Because then it, it impacts how you deal with yourself. And if you can't perform on a level, you feel like, man, well, maybe I'm not a man. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I, I can relate to you so much because I, I joined the Marine Corps at 18 years old, left my mother's house, marched right onto some yellow footprints. And, you know, I went to go become a man. It took me three weeks. No, I'm lying. It took me two weeks to cry in front of my drill instructors as they're like, you know, doing the drill instructor thing. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm crawling through uh, the mud, like, you know, it got sand everywhere. And I'm like, do I even want to really do this? And I'll tell you what, the whole reason why I did it or a strong driver and why I did it is because I left the house saying I was going to put my sister through college and buy my mom a house. Wow. That's what I told myself. I was 18 years old. I said it 19 years old. I said it at 20. I was still saying it. And my sister still remembers me. And she held it over my head later on when she was like, I thought you said you were going to do this. Right. Wow. I got married the day I turned the day after I turned 21. And now I have my own responsibilities, but I still have these mental promises that I made. And so now wow. I'm torn. I got this young woman that I just moved to Southern California with me. I'm trying to do this career thing, be a good Marine, lead men and women. You know, uh, I'm gone for 65% of the first two years of my marriage doing training and deployments. And I, and I'm thinking, 
I got to put my sister through college. I got to pay my house for my mom. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm living wow. paycheck to paycheck on E4 pay, you know? Wow. And there was absolute sense of failure. Absolute wow. sense of failure. Wow. And nobody, you know, I couldn't tell you, you know, writing it down on a piece of paper. Somebody said, hey, Ray, what are the expectations that you have set for yourself? I, I wouldn't be able to write to you. I fully expect for me to be financially responsible for my mind. No, it, it's in here. It's what you internalize yep. and the actions yep. that you take because of what yep. you've, the, the, the agreements that you've made in your mind. Yeah. And so I want to circle back to something that you said, because these agreements that you make will drive your taste. It's almost like you create yeah. a new sense of smell for some of the things that you pursue. And one of those being women, I yeah. only searched for women that were not going to reject me. So I made sure I set the bar, you know, middle of the line. And then to all my friends, it looked like he, oh man, raise a, raise a baller, man. He's a player, bro. I, I could, I would not approach a woman unless I was 100% certain that she would not reject me. And it's usually wow. because she made the advance first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when I, when I, when I, met, when I first met my wife, um, somebody was trying to hook me up with her and I was like, ah, no, no, I didn't know what she looked like. And then finally they introduced me and I see this blonde haired blue eyed woman with the like light beaming over her on the pier of Southern California. I'm shaking her hand, my jaw drops. And I'm like, I am not good enough for this woman. Right. Like this is not, this is not my target audience. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> so, what, what, what was it like for you, man? What, how was it that you felt like you just, you kept following or following or pursuing um, people um, who, who needed man, you? Man, you know, for me, man, it was really about uh, uh, my dad, man. Like, you know, I carry my dad's name. I'm a um, name after him. And for me, man, it was just being told that I was good enough. Mm. You know, and all through high school, you know, I found coaches that took me under their wing. I've always loved being coached and being mentored. And I was just always looking for that validation from a man. I was always looking to to hear a man. So I never forget a coach stopped me in the hallway. And um, I actually went back to my school some years ago, my high school and spoke. And my coach was there and he told the story. I remember I was walking through the hall. And he was like, J.J. Barnett, where are you going? And I was like skipping class, hanging out with some dudes. <laughs> and he was like, I was like, uh, uh, he's like, get your ass in class. And I'm like, man, all right, coach. I was like, man, whatever. And these dudes were looking at me like, man, you gonna let that white man tell you what to do, bro? Well, and, and he was like, big, man. Um, he was like about 6'4", probably about like, whoo, man, you know, BDLC was probably about 340 at that time, wow. man. He was a played lineman like this, you know, dude who was, who was phenomenal, man. Yeah. And um, and he said, JJ Barnett, you got a future. And I just got moved up to varsity, you know, my 10th grade year. And he was like, You're a 10th grader, you're sophomore, or is that sophomore? You're sophomore in varsity, and you're cutting class. He said, We need you on Friday nights, and you can't be cutting class and is this, you know, I mean, he just started talking to me, man. I just started crying, man. Wow. And he was just like, you need to get your act together. You got an opportunity to possibly go to college one day. Bro, Ray, nobody never told me that. And, yeah. and, I, and mind you, I want you to catch this. I had a uncle and two cousins who played in the NFL. They had never come back and talked to any of the younger cousins mm. about our possibilities to go to college, 
like my cousin, when he played for the Chiefs, you know, I used to go up, you know, I went up with him and visit, you know, when Joe Montana was playing and Marcus Allen, Derek Thomas, Neil Smith. So I got a chance to hang out with these dudes yeah. and be in the weight room. But nobody never told me that you can do this. Yeah. So I had no sense of awareness because my parents were preachers. So it was heavily on the God, but there was nothing about, hey, you're going to go do this after high school. You're going to go pursue that. So I never knew that. So I was always looking. And so when I got focused on football and I became sophomore of the year as a, um, as a sophomore, my junior year, I started receiving letters from colleges. And I was just like, man, dude. And coaches started really taking me under their wing. And I became this leader. I became a captain. You know what I mean? So I'm like, man, dude, this is, you know, I'm like, dude, this works. And I crave for that. Mm-hmm. And I crave for that from high school all, all the way through the pros. And when football didn't work out with me, and when I did get that call back, that's was the first time that I felt like, man, dude, now it's back to reality. Because now you don't have the voice of reasoning. You don't have the voice of support. You don't have the voice of saying you can. Like, there was nothing that a coach told me that I couldn't do. I remember breaking a state record and deadlift was 665 pounds. And yeah. I was like 225. And because the coach said, JJ, I know you can do it. And in my mind, I was like, I can. Boom, I did it. Yeah. So for me, I wasn't chasing girls. It was like, man, I was chasing that validation because mm. in my mind, my father was here. And so, you know, when he had his fall in ministry and my parents divorced, man, I literally was just seeking out like, man, who, who can I follow? Who can I get behind? Who can I can, you know, uh, be mentor to be kosher here? And every time, like, even I'll be in a barbershop, I used to go to this barbershop where a lot of pro athletes used to get their hair cut in high school. And they would be in there talking. And, and like, I was just sitting there and just listening. But I was just looking for something. Wow. It's a sponge. Yeah. And when football ended, like, round 24, 25, and life became hard, and I began uh, sort of reverting back to my old habits. I began cutting again as a grown man because now the pain is coming up, right? Because football just helped me just to suppress it. Yeah. But now that football was over and there was no more playing football, right? Because all through college, I suppressed. I had coaches in college who took me on their wings. You know, all that, man. And now here I am, man. It's like, okay, now what's next? Because you don't have a coach. You don't have a man that's speaking into your life. You don't have a man that's encouraging. So that's when I was like, man, let me get out of here. That's when I attempted suicide again, because I'm like, man, who am I going to follow? Yeah. And, and, and that's why it's so important for boys to have a model, not just a role model, because some of these models are just playing roles. That's They're good. not really role models. That's right. And it's important that we have the right model, men of standard, men of character, you know, men that really stand for something, not a man who's married and he's telling you about his side chick, you know, men who uh, uh, can be faithful uh, to their beliefs, their practices and those different things. 
Because what boys do is we do what we see. Mm-hmm. If you see Uncle Uncle Joe with two or three chicks, you think, shoot, man, Uncle Joe was on them. <laughs> yeah. I got to have me about two or three. So it creates all of this toxic and unhealthy behavior. And for me, all I wanted was just my father's love and appreciation. That's good. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you're, you just told a lot of my story, man. That's crazy. That's crazy. And, and I think it's a lot of, a lot of young men's stories. Yeah, man. Unfortunately, they just don't have either the means, the vocal means, you know, the vocabulary to express yeah, it. That, that, that's right? it, the vocabulary. Okay, or maybe they don't even have the opportunity and the permission to stop, pause life and say, I need help. Yes, that's it, Ray. That, that, that stop and pause is it. And it's permission. Because think about it. How many times were we given permission to even express how we felt as young boys? <laughs> Wasn't there. <laughs> Was not there. Like, I don't ever, I don't ever remember somebody asking me, how are you doing? Like, no, really, how are you doing? Hey, bro, I want to take a moment to tell you about an opportunity that I think could help you get better clarity and gain more confidence while processing your father wounds. One-on-one coaching is one of the best ways for men to get intentional about healing. It gives men that space that they need, you know, the individual attention that they need to be able to walk through some of that pain and to be able to connect with God in an intimate way. Right now, I'm coaching men from around the country, but because this requires so much individual attention, I can only coach four more men. If you want to give one-on-one coaching a try, schedule your free coaching call today by going to thebecomingmen.com forward slash coaching. Again, that's thebecomingmen.com forward slash coaching. Because like you said, people look at us and see that we're, we're, we have these physical features that may resemble someone older, but we're just babies. Yeah. We're just infants here. Yeah. No one has really developed or cultivated our psyche. So all we have is the memory of not being enough. The memory of well, not today, maybe mm-hmm. tomorrow. You know, I remember the first time that my father lied to me and I called him a liar. And, you know, I almost got a whooping because he said he was coming to pick me up, man. And I sat on the step, dude, for hours waiting. And that was the first time that I, I, I didn't even know what that was, man. Like, even when I think back, because I could still see myself sitting on the step and my mom coming out, your dad came back yet? No. Nah. I just remember being crying and being mad. And I hopped on my bike and rode up to town to ride around because that's what he said he was going up to town. And I was asking people, hey, y- y'all see my dad up here? No, I ain't seen him. And I just remember riding back. And my, remember my mom trying to stop me. You know, hey, you can't ride up to town. And I just remember just taking off on my bike. And when my dad came back, I remember when he walked in, I'm telling him, you lied to me. And just remember them punching and hitting him on his leg. And he's like, don't call me a liar. But it was the disappointment and not knowing that was that, you know, that was the emotion. Yeah. And that broke me. And for that reason, man, I don't like to make promises that I can't keep with people. Mm -hmm. And I don't like to do things to disappoint because I know what that feels like. Yeah. 
bro, you know. here, here's what happened today. <clears throat> Told my son last night, six year old, uh, we're going to be, uh, he calls it the butt crack of dawn boys means we get up really early in the morning, the butt crack of dawn. And we get to play um, his little Nintendo switch, which he rarely plays, but he's been doing so good with school. He wanted to save it to have that special time with dad. Well, dad got busy, right? Dad decided to go shoot some, some uh, arrows outside. Uh, I was playing uh, archer and uh, just trying to validate myself there. And then dad was like, I think I'm going to go work out. And my wife goes, you know, you promised Gianni that you would, that you would do this. And you're out here doing this, doing that. And I try to put in an excuse, right? She's like, eh, no, actually, this is the situation. I'm like, okay, all right. Holy Spirit, I get it. I walk inside. I take my little man. I put him on my, on my uh, leg. And this was just going to be a very casual one. I, I try to be honest, you know, and I said to him, Gianni, I am so sorry that I told you that we were going to do this and I didn't follow up. And then Jay... <laughs> My son got so uncomfortable. I started bawling, bro. I was crying and he just got uncomfortable because he's like, dad, I forgive you. And I'm just crying. And he goes, dad, I forgive you. You know, my six-year-old, then he hugs me because I don't think he wanted to look at me because he saw wow. this pain. And he's like, dad, I forgive you. And I'm like, son, hold on. And then I wanted to, I didn't want to run away from the moment. So I took him. I let him see him. I don't have a very like pretty crying face. I, I'm sure it took him. I was like, listen, my dad would tell me things that he was going to do all of the time. And I would sit there waiting all day, waiting for him and he would never show up. And I'm so sorry that I did that to you today. Wow. And man, it, that, that's just God answering some prayers um, pretty quickly. Cause last night I was like, Lord, um, take these things out of me that are not of you. Um, these things that I'm not paying attention to bring them up to the surface, yeah. bro. I feel you. Um, and I think just that act, right. Of me coming to my son and apologizing and me being aware of it, being able to bring language to it, being vulnerable with it. I, I, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that's one of the steps in the right direction to cut off that generational Carter, stuff. You did. You, you did when, when you share how your dad, did you, you immediately cut it off at the root mm. because now you identified it not only for him, but you identified it for yourself. Yeah. And most of the time we don't realize how powerful it is just to release things. Mm. And that's why I wrote, you know, just heal bro, that men's journal for men is to give brothers the space to write it down, to release it. And you had a moment with your son that's going to change his life because for the mere fact that you were able to go to him and even apologize, but even to allow him to extend grace to his father at mm. six year old that says, dad, I forgive you. But then you gave him even more context and saying, son, I know that you forgave me, but this is also something that I want to correct because this is what, this was my experience when I was a young boy. That is the birthplace of a healthy, nurturing father-son relationship. Because now the son gets to see where the father once was. And the father gets to see where he is. Yeah, that's good. That makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I applaud you, brother. That's, that's, that's big. And just even for him to see the tears also shows another level of care. Yeah. 
Because, see, I can see that you care, but to feel you, the warmth of your care is a totally different experience. Because the tears are an indicator that this is hitting my soul, son. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So earlier you mentioned um, some of the things that young men need and all men need is that, uh, that sonship, mentorship, and guidance. For, so for the men listening, and if they don't have a place to, to start, they don't know where to, what to do with all of this information that they just kind of gathered here, uh, where would you send them? What would you say? What do you got for them? Two, two books that I would highly encourage men to start with, rather three. One book is Kingdom Man by Tony Evans. That is a powerful book for any man to pick up and to begin to reading about not only what it is to be a man, but what does God say about you as the man? Because it's two different things. Um, Resolution for Men is a great book. Uh, I think the writer of what's the movie, uh, I can't, the, the Christian movie, but they are the writers of it. It's called Resolution for Men. Very okay. good book. It talks about fatherhood. And then the last book is Just Heal, Bro, my book. Mm-hmm. And because these are books where with Just Heal, Bro, I take you on a journey where I give you a short story and then I begin asking you questions because I want to challenge you to begin to express through the pen to put words to paper because when you can't find language, you can create language through your thoughts by writing it down. The words doesn't have to be perfect. doesn't have to be tailored and centered in a very uh, philosophical format to work. So we often feel, well, well, how do I need to say it? Just say it, be raw with it. But these are some tools that you can start to help facilitate your growth and healing to begin dealing. Because we are seeing a lot of men, I was just earlier, a friend of mine, her colleague, committed suicide last night, left Mm -hmm. behind a wife and three kids, a pharmacist, a pharmacist. And it broke my heart because when they told me how he, he, he ended his life, I said, man, that brother was struggling. And it's still such a huge stigma um, on not just mental health, but just on men being open and feeling okay. And what I want to tell brothers is that you cannot begin the healing process until you let go of the shame that's with, that's keeping you in bondage. A lot of us is a, a lot of us are we're not imprisoned by other people. We are self imprisoned by ourselves, by our own trauma experience, and so on and so forth. And these things are not things that are powerful beyond measure to keep us from moving forward. But it's the thoughts mm-hmm. that we tell ourselves that keeps the thing, the issue, the trauma holding the power to control our behavior. Because that's, that's what all trauma and experience does. It does yeah. nothing but uh, 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 manipulate behavior. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you begin to express those things and begin to talk about it, and as I want to say to the brothers, man, you deserve to be healed. 
you deserve to grow. You deserve to live beyond the experience because one thing about I wanted to do when I started my journey healing and started speaking and writing books, I wanted to see who could I become because I'd already lived this life of misery, this life of depression. Uh, I was suicidal. I've been suicidal as you know as long as I can remember from 13 to about 30. Yeah. So every day, every day was death, and I took so many chances with my life. My last suicide attempt was an overdose. Like I was taking these chances because. I wasn't necessarily trying to end my life. I was trying to end the pain of the memories. Yeah. The pain of what was said, what was done. How did it happen? When did it happen? Where did it happen? Those things. And I just want to encourage the brothers, man, you deserve to be whole. And the wholeness that you're seeking can only be found in the stillness of you facing yourself. You can't find it through a woman. You can't find it through a man. You can't find it through a job, through a career. You can't find it through money because there's so many people who have arrived successfully, successfully with their careers, with their jobs and with their endeavors. And, you know, because everybody's focused on being in the bag, but how many of them are really focused on being within themselves? Because that's the true you. And if you want to show up authentically in this life, you have to deal and heal. That's good. Man, if, if the men listening want to be able to connect with you, they want to get a, a hold of you, where do they go? Where do you want to send them? Yeah, so I do virtual coaching and counseling, kjbcoaching.com, uh, www.kjbcoaching.com. Uh, you know, brothers have been messaging me left and right. You can find the book, Just Heal Bro, on Amazon. Uh, there's a great interview that I have on the breakfast club about fatherhood, about men, check that out. And all of my social media is the same across the board via Twitter and via Instagram, King J Barnett. You know, I remember the day when it finally all clicked for me. It was when I invited another man into my corner to, to be my life coach, really my mentor. And it was just such an, such an invigorating time because I was starting to discover so much about me, so much about God, because my coach did such a good job at pointing me to the Lord and, and extracting those things that are already inside of me, those abilities, those God given gifts and be able to put me up against my life battles, right? Because a coach will never fight your battles with you, but put me up against my life battles and give me the confidence, the encouragement and that I needed to get through with it. And I just, if there's one thing that I can tell you guys right now, that is a game changer. It is coaching, getting another man in your corner. So whether you visit Jay or you come over to the becoming men.com and get coaching from us guys, your life will be transformed. I, be, I 100% believe that because that is what the Lord intended when he said that we should go out and make disciples. Disciples are made at the nuclear level. Gentlemen, until next time, continue to march. March.